From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 829, Top Technical Skills for Modern IT Pros with guest Sonia Cuff. Recorded Thursday, April 21st, 2022. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Hi, this is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Bringing back one of my favorites today, Sonia Cuff, who is a person who connects in person and online with worldwide IT communities on behalf of Microsoft and is a senior cloud ops advocate on the Azure engineering team, and she educates and empowers and upskills communities. And it's, I think, fifth trip on the show in like two years. You've been busy. Richard, you know, I, you know, I can never say no to coming on a podcast episode with you. I just love our conversations. Well, that and we chat for a half hour before the show anyway. <laughs> it's like, well, we really should make the show because we end up getting into the, all of those topics. But thanks so much for coming back. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm going to dig into this podcast. But before I do, I have to call back to your last show, the one we did back in December of 2021. We talked about hybrid identity and all those challenges. And I don't know if you recall, I sort of said this off-the-cuff thing about security, right? And the, and the sort right. of there's tiers of security that are built in and free, and you just have to set them up properly. And then there's tiers of security you actually have to pay for. And you gave a really great answer at the time, like one that I have quoted ever since. It just says, hey, there's a point at which there are features you can turn on that literally involve, and I'm quoting from you now, people at Microsoft working on your behalf, and and you need to pay for that part. Yeah, that's all right. Those premium levels where you're not just getting a feature that you're turning on, you're actually getting the capability of a team, and not only the team, but the machine learning and the analytics and mm-hmm. all of the stuff that we build to to detect those threats, plus a ton of intelligence and connections that goes on in the back end. So it's it's an ongoing service. Um, it's a security as a service. Right. Really. Literally, it is security in, in the back end. So, yeah. Well, we got a comment on about that from Jordan. He said, I really appreciated your comment saying it doesn't feel right to have to pay more to, quote, properly secure account. And I don't think I said that, but... And I can also see that Sonia's perspective that higher tiers are really to pay for Microsoft security experts. I would counter this perspective with the fact that an M365 customer base is huge, which paints a bigger target on the back of all of the customers. Back in the day, I had dozens of small business server email servers. And in the 10 years, we never did see a business email compromise of an on-premise exchange server with only single factor auth authenticated or configured. Um, and the same customer base has now migrated to Office 365 and has been dealing with uh, business email compromises until we rolled out MFA. Um, the problem is we continue to see business email compromise even with baseline security. It does not cover impossible travel. We've seen ex- several examples of MFA not required on new sessions from new devices. It seems like Microsoft has made M365's customers much easier to attack and has not gone far enough for security for everyone. I don't think I agree with you, Jordan. Uh, I think business email compromise has evolved that, honestly, you got lucky with your SBS. Like, you, all of those SBS services, you still got them in place. And good on you for migrating them to O365 in the first place. They all would have been attacked by Hafnium. 
You know, the hafnium exploits of a, was that a year ago, two years ago? I was, when I, you know, I have an exchange server. I got lucky that it didn't get exploited by hafnium. Like, there are plenty of more attacks out here. I think the attack surface has evolved. And that, uh, and that 0365, because there are more customers, I don't deny it's a larger target. If there was an exploit available, that would be a really big deal. I also think there's a heck of a lot more people working on making sure it doesn't get attacked and that it does react quickly to the zero days uh, than SBS ever had. And that, that's a really good point. I, I'm, I'm just going to start by saying I'm in a few Facebook groups where I get to see the chatter going on about the suburbs that the suburb that I live in and the suburbs that are neighbouring, right? And through that, I now know if a house in a suburb, you know, a, a few miles away got broken into sure. because they post it in their yep. group. They say my house was broken into, my car got stolen, whatever. We didn't have that sort of communication mechanism going back 10 years ago. So now does it look like we have more crime? Do we really have more crime or is it just that I'm now hearing about it? Because yeah. I wouldn't have heard about it. That kind of crime would never have made the, the local newspaper even, really, unless I was deeply into crime statistics from my from my local police. So I think there is a little bit of, there's a lot more insulation when you're running on-prem that you don't hear everybody else's security breaches. Absolutely. Nobody's going out there saying, hey, guess what? Our SBS server got hacked unless, you know, they're posting it on Reddit because they need help. Um, but I think we do see the visibility of it a lot more, which mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean it has increased, but it has also increased because people are becoming more sophisticated with their attacks. But on the flip side, the last point that you made Microsoft is doing a significant amount of work to secure the platform as right. well, which we weren't doing when you were running your SBS server. And so it's in our best interest to make sure that M365 is a secure platform because we have all of our customers on it. You guys have the right incentives now too. Yeah, yeah. But I'll also say MFA requirements is more of an evolution of the attacker than it is an evolution of the platform. Absolutely. The, the attacker has, is, has learned to make money from their attacks. The old days of kids writing worms just to see if they propagated is long gone. These are real organized criminals and it's a business. And, uh, and we have to be more secure. Moving to the cloud wasn't what increased the attack rate. Uh, moving the cow was arguably a response to the attack rate increasing because it actually makes us more secure. Yeah, and when I got into tech, not everybody even had access to email right. in an organization. And now, not it, not only does you know most of the employees have got email, but they've got a whole bunch of other apps and places that they're storing data. And so, because our users are more digital, that didn't take long for the hackers to figure out. It is much easier to convince a user to hand over the username and password mm -hmm. than it is to try and get behind the security of a system and hack in through firewalls or servers or whatever. Like so way much easier and because they do it at such huge scale mm -hmm. like it's not hard for them to send out all those phishing emails grab a couple of passwords here and there that don't have mfa protecting them like that's an easy in yeah and i also see i i see because i'm involved in this routinely that um, microsoft responds very quickly to those broad sweeping attacks like most customers will never be aware of the number of attempts that are going on 
just because the you guys are on them so early, well well ahead of them. And then I get uh, opportunities like interviewing Ann Johnson recently, where she sort of quietly hinted at just how high a level Microsoft works inside of intergovernmental organizations to dismantle these organized crime groups. Like they, you know, you guys work at a lot of different levels. Jordan, I hope that addresses your question. I know it was a few months ago and, uh, and I appreciate your thinking. I know it can be, it's scary and frustrating, but it is also the world we're living in these days. And perhaps a run as radio mug will make you feel better. So a run as radio mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a run as radio mug, write a comment on the website at runasradio.com or on Facebook or, or on uh, LinkedIn. We also, I read all the comments from there. And if I read them on the show, I'll send you a run as mug. You got your mug somewhere, I think. My rug, you know, I mean, this isn't a video show, but um, mm-hmm. if you peer into any of the videos I've done lately, my rug's actually sitting on my top shelf just behind my head. Nice. So you can actually see the shelf. Oh, my goodness, it is gigantic. <laughs> 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 All right. You wrote a blog post early in April. We're publishing this in May. And, and I literally, this moment I read it, I not only tweeted it out, then I just sent you a message like, you got to do a show on this. This top technical skills for the modern IT pro. It's just fun. T- we all know this stuff, but it was so grateful that you consolidated it all. It's like, we need to know a lot. of The list is long. Oh, my gosh. The list is very long. And it was hard to keep the scope tight for the particular article. I got a lot lot of feedback with people suggesting some of the other skills that we need, especially the core skills like how to talk to people who aren't technical, Mm -hmm. how to troubleshoot and diagnose, like all of those things. Completely agree to the point where maybe I think I need a second article that talks about that kind of stuff. But the scope for this one, because I didn't want it to turn into a war and peace novel, was the technical Technical skills. skills. Yeah, and I'm just going to start with how I I just snuck in the modern IT pro because we could do a whole show just debating that particular term. I know that this raises the hairs on some people sometimes when they hear this term modern as if we're telling people that if they've been working on older systems or if they've been doing this for a long time that they're irrelevant and that they need to get with the program and that everything needs to be modern. So it was kind of a little bit of a cheeky put it in the title there to to see whether we get some sort of reaction on it. But what it comes down to is when I was working in the managed service provider space and we were seeing the end of small business server and a lot of move to the cloud, we saw a lot of IT pros who were resistant to change or didn't know how to move the technical skills into that area mainly because that's not where their customer base was. It was possibly where their customer base was going. Mm -hmm. But in IT Pro, it's a busy life. You need to be focused on the things that you're doing now. There's not a lot of time to look at the stuff in the future. However, what happened was more and more businesses came online, especially the larger organizations first. And we started seeing that if you went and had a look in the career section and you were looking for a job as a systems administrator, there were cloud skills listed and there were, um, you know, topics like Azure and, and Office 365 that if you didn't have those skills, you now were not as relevant in the market without them. Yeah, you were going to struggle to get a callback because it seems like most organizations now, 
needs some amount of cloud skill. I mean, it, it, and, I, and I don't want this to just be about, yeah, you need to skill up in the cloud. I appreciated right off the bat, you're like, hey, you know what? DNS and DHCP, still relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, especially when in reality, we're always in a hybrid world. There's always machines on in your office and maybe some amount of server as well. And uh, and then you're also trying to communicate the cloud. Like you're way more dependent on your internet connection for most organizations than you ever were before. You know, I, I'm definitely of an era where I remember when we got internet into the office and then what are we really going to use this for? You don't think about that anymore. But boy, if you bought your DNS configuration, everybody's sad. <laughs> and it's a refreshing to be up to have that conversation and say that now because I think when cloud arrived, it firmly was a message of migrate all the things, right? Yeah. Turn off your servers, fire your sysadmins, everything's going cloud, you don't need them anymore. And that's not reality. That's not how it panned out. And for a lot of organizations, hybrid, and we've actually had Satya say this, hybrid is a valid end state. It's the destination. For a lot of organizations. It is not a stepping stone to cloud. It is a a valid end state. And so I'm actually working on some internal training materials at the moment to help salespeople in the field sort of understand the concept. Because if you haven't worked in an IT operations environment, you don't quite get – you might understand why hybrid is a thing, like why you might want to do some cloud stuff and why you might want to have some stuff on-prem, but the complexities of actually executing that yeah. is, is is not easy. But it comes back, as I started the article, it comes back to the basics. And it always concerns me about whether or not for people that are new to this as a career, whether we're teaching them the right basics. When I got into IT, somebody sat me down and they pulled up a whiteboard, and they taught me how TCP IP addressing works. Right. Right? So that level of what is this 192.168, like what do these numbers mean and how is it formed in subnet masks? And one of the most fun articles that I wrote on our IT Ops Talk blog was CIDR notation. Mm -hmm. Because if you're coming from a 255.255.255.i mask world and now you're doing stuff in Azure where your subnetting is like slash 24, like what the heck? What's that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so yeah and it's and it's and it's old school like yeah. we were being taught yeah. that back literally 20 years ago when tcpap won you know when the rest <laughs> of the network it's like yeah you know and I, I remind folks ever so often it's like first version of windows that actually supported tcpap by default windows 2000 yeah that and makes sense yeah before that it was NetBuoy first tcpap was Buoy. a stack you could install but it wasn't the default stack it wasn't until 2000 that it was the default stack <laughs> and look, I, I love the fact that we can have this conversation and a lot of our audience will resonate with this, right, where <laughs> we can go back to what it was like in the old days yeah. when I had to plug in token ring cables and get IPX, SBX working and, you know, um, Novell lands and netware and all of that fun stuff. But to be able to have those conversations where we're not going, get off my lawn, it was so much better then, but actually go, okay, but... Yeah. Where we're at now is there are some solid foundational technical skills you might have learned then, Mm -hmm. or you still need to be learning now if you're new to career, that are always going to stand you in good stead. Networking, how Windows Server works, the basics of security from an IT ops perspective, identity and how identity and access management works, all of that kind of stuff, we are doing the same things that looking at the same topics now compared to when I started in my career. Sure. It's just the tools and the technology that we're using are different. Well, and I would argue while it is more also more complicated, it's easier too. like if oh, you yeah. actually embrace the good tooling, 
it leads you down the right path. Like sit down and spend some time in the security dashboard in Azure and see if you aren't thinking more coherently about the problem space because it really does sort of drop you in the pit of success for that stuff rather than you working from an out-of-date book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh, you know, um, limited search engines, um, books and, and white papers, and, and that was kind of it. But now we're even at the point where we publish things like the Azure Security Baselines mm -hmm. and, you know, be able to enforce those as policies and light up a whole bunch of stuff that we've kind of packaged together as this is a, a good standard. This is a really good base to start with um, to, to try and make it easier for sure. But I just you mentioned about the tools and the languages mm -hmm. and it's really interesting because when I talk to people, especially who aren't IT pros, they want to drag me into the DevOps world and they seem to be focused on the fact that as long as I turn all my infrastructure into code and I automate everything, then life as an IT pro will be amazing. And I agree mm. with that to a point, but I think outside of the ops space, people overestimate how much we actually do in deployments. Right. Like, Deploying new systems is actually a fraction of the work yeah. that, that an IT pro does. Doesn't that happen that often? And if it does, it rapidly does get pretty automated, so you're not that involved in it. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the, the article does talk about things like infrastructure as code, using GitHub to store your code. Mm -hmm. um, and those those are important things to learn, and they are going to make life easier, especially, you know, GitHub is the place for your PowerShell scripts. It's, yeah. it's kind of cool when you start to get into it, and I think we can learn from some of those developer tools and methods methodologies from that respect but we also make decisions every day about how to spend our time and I know that we're going okay so how long is it going to take me to automate the thing versus how long is it going to take me to do the thing right. is the thing that I'm doing something that I'm going to repeat regularly is it something I need to scale like so we draw a line where we're not necessarily going to go and automate all the things mm -mm. because sometimes it's just easier to jump on the server or jump in the Azure portal and just make the damn change um, but certainly there are other areas where it's it's worth investing the time. And I think the strength is in the community that is building and sharing how they are breathing new life into processes for, for IT ops. So that kind of like development, I guess, you're not necessarily sitting down and creating the wheel from scratch. Yeah, there's obviously there's some there's someone else in there that's monitoring the similar systems or need to run the same command across all of their users. And so the more we build that community up to sort of share those code examples and that scripting and automation, we help build each other's knowledge, the better. I, I totally agree. And I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. There are a lot of different installer formats and multiple approaches to deploying Windows software. Deploying software without package management on Windows can be complicated and time-consuming. Chocolatey simplifies this through a simple, repeatable, and automated approach by using a universal packaging format for managing all Windows software. Whether installers are native, zips, scripts, binaries, or in-house developed, Chocolatey treats them all as first-class citizens. Write once, deploy anywhere, with anything, and then track and manage. Chocolatey for Business is a complete software management suite built on our popular open-source offering. C4B focuses on three key areas, improved security, enhanced productivity features, and enabling more visibility. C4B adds endpoint deployment for managing all of your machines with Chocolatey Central Management, all backed with our dedicated support, services, and roadmap. To learn more about Chocolatey for Business, go to chocolatey.org. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Sonia Cuff. We're talking a bit about these 
modern skills or technical skills for modern IT pros. And I do want to separate the two things, like talking about networking, identity, security, server, like these were all things we were likely already doing. There's some new tooling around it and some new complexity or sophistication in the cloud. But the GitHub thing is new, new. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like to, I, I've talked about it a few times in the show, this whole, the first time you get to a place where you, somebody else runs your scripts beside you, that's a good day. Like go have a beer. Uh, and when you get to the point where somebody else wants to make change to your script and it really should be in source control is an even better day. Like that to me is a very different way to think about operations in your organization that I have multiple people that are going to share a procedure, maintain that procedure. And, and we need to keep track of how it's changed when it's run, who has access to it. Like those are, are big changes to a very common practice of having a script just much more sophisticated. Yeah, and, and I think it really hit me when I was going and looking for examples. Um, I mean, we used to store Kix32 scripts on a file share, right? And anybody sure. could, anyone in the IT department could steal them off the uh, the shared drive and go and modify them. No source control at all. Like, I don't no. know who's edited what. Um, but, you know, that, that was kind of how we shared scripts back in the day. But even if I don't have an immediate need for that kind of collaboration in my organization. When I go out to look for how to do something at scale and it's based on PowerShell, more often than not now, it's some it's in somebody's GitHub repo. It's a repo. And when yeah. I look at a GitHub repo, I go, what the heck is this? <laughs> like, uh, do I, is there a download button? Like, I just, I'm, I'm this, there's files and folders here, but I'm not quite sure what I do with them. Yeah. And so I kind of, I kind of realized that that was the way that, that we were way we were going that I needed to learn. And then it, it kind of also got forced upon me a little bit because I, a lot of the Microsoft documentation that exists in Microsoft Learn and in docs.microsoft.com lives in GitHub and is based in Markdown. Right. And so as an internal contributor now, as a Microsoft employee, if I'm writing content for either of those two platforms, it's Markdown files and it, it, it's pull requests into GitHub, which was a new skill for me to learn and I was joking with someone the other day you know I've got a bunch of git commands in one note um, mm -hmm. that I go back and copy and paste they don't always work I can you know sometimes get my release branches in a knot and go what the, what the heck have I done here yeah. now? why is this sad Yes, it's a big learning curve, but um, it, it's good and when it you know when it works it works well and I can see the the benefits of it yeah yeah absolutely and 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 again it's, it's a progression thing right like a, that you can you start out just having your code somewhere where you can work from it and then being able to do more and more with it. But it's, and GitHub's one of those things where it's like, you should take a half a day and find whatever method you prefer to learn in, whether that is read the docs and work your way through it or grab a book or watch a video, like whatever it may be, get yourself to a comfortable level where you can just have a document that is in source control for yourself. But, and then, you know, that's the first piece that then leads you to multiple people in the work from things. And then you can start taking advantage of that community. Uh, but it does to me feel like one of the most unusual new skills for that, that IT pro is, is source control. And you know, that those dev folks can help you, right? which is, <laughs> that's a funny day to go, Hey, I'm, I need to do some stuff with source control. Can you help me? Like they, they've been living there for a while. They, they, they are useful. Uh, skipping back up to more common things, but also things that I think have evolved a lot, monitoring and the diagnostic engines in these hybrid spaces, I think, 
and even and even if you're still largely on prem, like Azure Monitor is a big change. You know, if you've never got down the SCCM route because it was just uh, and and uh, performance monitoring, like those were expensive tools in the day. And if you've got any kind of Azure account at all, you've got Azure Monitor. Azure Monitor is simple and powerful. And I love it for both of those reasons. You can put the easiest little monitor to detect something in the performance of your VM, or you can create the most beautiful complex workbooks to run automations when things happen off the alerting. And one of my favorite newer features, it's not, not super new now, it's been out a little while, mm-hmm. is dynamic thresholds. And we could never do that on-prem. Yeah. So with dynamic dynamic threshold monitoring, I can turn around and go, actually, I want to know when the system is performing outside of what is normal for the system. Right. So it will actually learn and look at things like CPU usage. And the system will turn around and go, okay, well, the CPU usage on this system drops over the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, it's not doing much. Monday, it spikes back up again. You know what? That's normal for the system. Mm-hmm. And so if this system all of a sudden spikes high CPU on a Saturday night, I'm going to trigger an alert. Right. Not because it's a high CPU alert, but because it shouldn't be doing that on a Saturday night because it hasn't done it for the last eight Saturdays in a row. And that was kind of a glimmer of hope for me to actually see concepts like AI and ML creep into our world. Right. So we're not talking about what we're doing with data or, you know, what we're doing with applications. It's like, oh my gosh, we are, I think we're just on the starting of seeing those AI and those ML components actually be useful to me as an IT pro for operating and monitoring, you know, my systems. And that's exciting. I like that. Yeah. And then, and then it learns your normal and then mentions to you when it's not normal. I also like the little trend notifications, where it's like, yeah. you know, this keeps getting bigger. You're going to have problems here. You know, that yeah, those, those kinds of things. And that's very common in data stores. It's just like, I've. It, how often do I, should I do housekeeping on this? Well, the system will help show you when it's going to get to a place where maybe some of this stuff could move to cold storage. Maybe these, you know, that last month's data can be stripped out. Like it's, it's interesting to have the tooling help you head down that path. Uh, the containers and Kubernetes section, like to me, this seems like a very specific, modern, new practice. Like when do people want to get the, involved in this? It doesn't seem like a default thing at all. You can have a very successful career and a very functional organization without it. What what does this really solve? Look, I from an IT ops perspective, I think the jury's still out on it a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's important It's important enough to mention for a couple of reasons. I remember staying up very late one night in Australia when Microsoft Build was on and containers were first announced. And I'm not a developer, but I understood that from a developer perspective, if I wanted an application that I could make self-contained so that I could pick it up and move it anywhere and it didn't care, it didn't have any underlying ties through to a host operating system because Mm -hmm. it was its own self-contained little thing, I'm like, that's pretty cool. We haven't been able to do that before and I can kind of see why that might be useful. When I had the conversation about containers and Kubernetes, 
it really does depend on where your organisation is at. Because right. I know some organisations who have not really looked at it at all. And then we have other organisations that are, that are full on. This is the way and they have been running it since the early days and they've, they've seen container orchestration um, mature and evolve. And right. so I think it's really one of those things where it may be more that it's your developers that drive it in your organisation in yep. terms of having it included. But one of the cool things we talk about being an IT pro is really being T-shaped with your skills. And being T-shaped means having a broad awareness of, of what's going on and what's important in the industry. Mm-hmm. And then going down deep to the things that you need to go down deep on when, when you need to go down deep on them. And so understanding the concept of containers, understanding, because as an IT pro, I go, okay, that's cool. How yeah. do I monitor it? How do I back it up? Yeah. How do I manage the performance? Right, All of those kind of questions. So to sort of wrap your head around how that works in a container world, you might not, your organization might not be at that place where it's yeah. a skill that you need to go deep in right now, but it certainly is a valid option for infrastructure and, and for people hosting applications. So be aware of it, understand how it works, learn the differences um, and then go deep on it when you need to. Yeah, but certainly my experience has been if you're taking, you want to move brownfield, you know, existing applications into a container infrastructure, you're going to have to touch developers at some point. There's, yeah. there's very few pieces of software that exist today that can handle that re-architecting. That there's, there's going to be some kind of changes. So I've, there's often developers involved. And if it's greenfield, it's developers driving it anyway. They want to use that yeah. architecture. So it seems to me that's the most common scenarios. But from an IT perspective, if I've met organizations that have very, they have, they are really disciplined about their suite of internal apps and they're trying to deal with the security's concerns of aging software and they're trying to deal with, um, uh, architectural problems. I have more remote workers and so forth. This app was never built that way. And containerization seems to address a bunch of that, but it's, it's not, a, I rarely see it as an IT initiated process that it is the often IT owns the app problem. And so they're aware of it, but then you need the architects and you need the devs involved because there's going to be some things that are going to have to change to get on that. But in terms of, you know, long-term strategies for maintaining large back catalogs of internal software, it's hard to argue with containers. That and the platform agnosticism, although to me, most of the time it's, we're running this on-prem, we're going to architect it in this new way to be able to run it on-prem, and then it can easily move to the cloud in that new architecture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, very interesting, I mean, aspect of of the conversation. And the good news is, with all these stacks, like, they do have good monitoring and security and deployment and backup strategies now, arguably better ones. You know, you'll fight, you'll fight the, the process of getting it into that form makes it a lot easier to do those things than the old form that it was in. You, you mean, you talked briefly about infrastructure as code. To me, this seems like this is part of the preventative evolution in IT. Like most of you know, you spend a certain amount of time fighting fires and in the pounding yeah. surf and knocking down the ticket list. And then you get a little mm-hmm. bit of discretionary time to improve things. And uh, I find that for a lot of organizations getting uh, automation around deployment of things. And, and so this uh, infrastructure as code um, seems to be a big one because it becomes the, their sk- If you don't do it very often, they're always scary. 
and there are, and your docs are invariably wrong. And so the nice thing about code is it's inherently right. And when it's wrong, you will fix it. I think it is sort of the next evolution of the pets versus cattle discussion. Yes. Line. Because in my day, you know, we used to rock up to a piece of server hardware and we used to an install Windows Server, whether it was on the bare metal or whether it was a, as a VM. Mm-hmm. And then we needed to find the documentation of how it was configured. Now, normally in a small organization, you might have been the person who was doing this and you know that you always go into the server after setup and there's certain things that you configure or change or whatever. Yep. Um, but I, I remember... Word documents that are over 20 pages because mm-hmm. they have screenshots of all the different settings that, that you need to change. And then, like, that's out of date as soon as it's done because it's nobody's wrong. monitoring configuration drift on a no. server. No. <laughs> and so, the, you know, the, the infrastructure as code thing becomes important there for easier deployment um, and getting that consistency off the bat. But now with the cloud tools as well, it's it's – the way that we deploy into the cloud more often than going through next, next, next in the in the Azure portal. Yeah. And we can see how that plugs into what the developers want to do when they want to deploy infrastructure as part of the solution that they're deploying. And that's where we have the crossover between the two different teams. And then Azure Bicep comes along to try and make it easier to structure your infrastructure as code into different components in a language syntax that is more concise um, than the JSON files that we were using it's, for our ARM templates. It's and way so more that's legible. That's another new evolution. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot easier to read, a lot easier to reuse. Um, yeah. Go and do anything on the Azure Bicep fundamentals on Microsoft Learn. And there's actually some really good examples that show you the difference between that and, and the older ARM template. So that's that's certainly a place that's going to keep growing. And I also appreciate that Bicep is very bidirectional. So if you've already spent a lot of time tinkering with your own ARM templates, they, you know, you can see your templates in bicep. So yeah, you, know, yeah. You, you don't have, it's not like you have to rehabilitate yourself out of that. You, you, it already works. You, you know, it'll be fine. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, I will just throw in there that, um, you know, that this article, this little article that this Microsoft employee wrote that sits on a Microsoft property, um, that's talking about Microsoft's Azure bicep. Can I say the word Microsoft any more times? I don't know. Um, <laughs> try. <laughs> does, does also, um, you know, for the purposes of our conversation, there are other infrastructure as code tools, right? Yes. We know that they exist, that they've been around for a while, and that some organizations are using things that are not Azure Bicep, Shock Horror. Um, they are also cool. Yes. And so I just, just want to make sure that people are aware that this was a very Azure-focused article. If you are heavily into Azure and that is your cloud of choice and all your deployments are in our cloud, Azure Bicep is is phenomenal, yeah. but we know that there are other organizations that are using IAC to deploy to other places, um, and they use different flavors of IAC systems, sure. and that's just as valid as well. So go go and pick your flavor of choice. Um, if you're doing primarily stuff in Azure, use the Azure stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and I, funny, I just did a show recently on the dev side of things where we were comparing a few different IAC strategies. And it was very much that point of what your big advantage with Bicep is Azure changes weekly and it is immediately implemented the templates and Bicep can always support it. Yeah, you know? yeah. But if you are living in puppet land or Terraform land, because you sure. do stuff that's deploying to AWS or, you know, other locations, they will get those features eventually, but not day of. So you have to pay that price for 
you know, I have this cross-platform solution and I can do more and it works for more cases, but it also is behind. And you have to wait yeah. for them, the implementations to roll out. But that that's fair. You know, that's that's the price of the, that diversity. No one said multi-cloud <laughs> was going to be easy. You know, pretty <laughs> sure we were, we were confident on that. I'd be remiss coming into the end of this if we didn't spend a little time on the power automate stuff. Because this is the thing is, besides GitHub and, you know, you should talk about Visual Studio Code and Windows Terminal, which I don't think I have to convince people very much on. (laughs) Both of those, once you spend a little, like, the moment you've written PowerShell and Visual Studio Code, you won't go back. Because it helps you understand your own code. And same thing with Windows Terminal. And you mentioned, watch Hanselman's video. Absolutely. Do what he does, and you won't go back. The Power Automate cell is a harder cell. Because it's a big commit, and it's also costs money. Like you, when you start turning on Power Automate, it has a billing piece to it as well. But uh, you know, how do you approach that part? Uh, I think it it's about knowing that it's in your toolkit. Right. And when we first started having the conversation, we were talking about Azure Monitor, Logic Apps, and the and the Power Automate stuff is just one of these other building blocks that you can plug in to help automate the processes to bolt onto monitoring. And the automation stuff is so much more than just automating a response to an alert. Um, it's an easier way to get into the automation realm. I mean, you know, we started off in the consumer base using if this, then that, right. right? With those connectors when we were all using 10 different software as a service systems. And so we wanted to go, okay, so if this ticket fires in here, like how do I light that up in this dashboard? And <laughs> having those inbuilt connectors to connect disparate systems together to actually automate a flow of, of what we wanted do. We're also seeing more evolution in those Microsoft products for the Microsoft platforms as well. And so in the early days, I remember digging into how to grab a webhook to pump an alert through to Microsoft Teams and post it as a message. Now there's a connector and it's literally, I just go and I pick Teams and I pick the channel and I pull out the dynamic bits of the message I want and, and it's done. And so just knowing that that's there as an option to help you wrangle that sort of process stuff you want to do across disparate systems without having to pull together all the webhook code. <laughs> it, it is it is a really bad Yeah, so you, you could do it yourself. This just makes it a lot easier. And when you look at that yeah. roster connectors, it's astonishing. And, it, and we didn't really talk about teams in any of this because M365 is a whole other thing. But, and I, and, we, and I have shows about that, I really appreciate the idea that, you know, there's some N365 inside, uh, organi- folks inside of your organization that are trying to get more people to use Teams, and IT can be part of that. These kinds of connectors, oh, to be pushing those alerts into a group channel, just so, so that it isn't going to your pager or your phone or into bloody email. Right. But it's in this place that we begin to hang out in because it's the place where the fires show up first or the warnings show up before the fires. Like, how do I fix things before the phone rings? And I would love to just have a brainstorming session on how IT ops can use Teams as a work platform for ops. Um, I was playing around. I was playing around the other day with um, Azure Boards to get a bit more functionality in Teams about Azure DevOps work items mm-hmm. and visibility of those into Teams. And I think it is there's a lot of untapped potential there because the primary focus of the market for Teams is the workplace. Yep. 
not not the IT workers, but there is so much potential there for us to explore how that could work and how that could make our lives better, especially the way that we can connect different systems into it. When I was leading groups, um, you know, back when I did real work, we used other technology to capture the di- the uh, you know uh, recognizing there was a problem, diagnosing the problem, repairing the problem, right? Whatever yeah. it, was, it was, e-commerce sites. And often these fights, you know, the, this was a two or three hour firefight. But the fact that others people could read the entire thing in, in, and see the timestamps as we, the amount of time we spent doing diagnostics before, and then finally knew the correct action to take and then did a couple of test actions to make sure it was right. And then, you know, applied the fix. The main thing that I wanted as a manager, knowing how good these teams were, was to allow other people outside the team to recognize hey, your job is hard. Mm-hmm. And these this behavior of creating these spaces where you can have this thing go on, where anybody could, in theory, drop into that group and watch your folks prosecute that firefight and succeed is good for the company. It's good for the team. Like, it's just when everybody can appreciate we're working hard, like this job is not trivial. You don't just turn it off and turn it back on again. You know, there's a little bit more to it than that. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. It's <laughs> remarkable how effective that is, right? But, but you know, and that's also in the dialogue. Uh, and so the idea that we would that look at the tools we have now to do this with, and that a little bit of power automating, a little bit of teams, and plugging into these different pieces so that stuff showed up there and became a conversation about making the, stru- the infrastructure better. I think it's really powerful. It's a thing. Next level thing is another one of my preventative pieces of if I can do more of that, a lot of other things will get easier in the future. Yeah, it's a little bit of that concept of working out loud, right? Of being mm-hmm. able to lift the visibility of the stuff that you're doing as you're doing it, because we all know what it's like. You've got a Sev one or a Sev two on your hands. You are head down in logs trying to figure out what the heck is going on, and the service delivery manager and the business wants an update every half an hour. Yeah. And before you know it, it's half an hour and they're like, where's our update? Why haven't you updated the ticket? I'm like, okay, do you want me to stop troubleshooting this problem so that yeah. I can go and update that ticket? Or do you want me to fix the problem. problem? Yeah. And every time you call me, I'm going to bump the ETA out. Um, but the uh-huh. idea that you could just invite them to the group, hey, you can watch the firefight. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, and I appreciate that. And I think it's also, it takes, it, it spend, you spend less time keeping people calm when they can see the work is going on. Yeah, they just want to know that progress is being yeah. made. And, you know, sometimes if you're not in the space, you don't appreciate how much sometimes it just takes time, takes time. to look at what you're looking at, work through it, discount the stuff that's not relevant, try some stuff. Yeah, it's it's not an easy job. And no, we all no. know it's a thankless job. No, but I also remember at the end of a firefight how much I appreciated my team right? Like at that, how great each of my people were. And we all knew that, like we'd all been in the foxhole and nobody else knew. Absolutely. So the fact that we could make sure that other people know, I think it helps everybody ultimately. Uh, we could go on for hours, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think we should. I think that's a, that's a show. Thank you again for writing this. I hope everyone it's in the show notes. Please read it. It's a really great thought. And actually the comments in it are pretty good too. Like people have clearly read it and thought about other things they're concerned about that are technical as well. Like it's a nice little community you have formed around this, this great blog post of yours, uh, Sonia. 
Thanks. And as, as you know, there's, there's, it was a pretty tight scope, so we didn't cover things like um, Windows Desktop and sure. how you manage that or, or M365. So love to hear people's comments in terms of if you're in those spaces, what yeah. do you think is important in terms of the, the skills and the tools that you should be learning? But um, no, it was, it was nice to be able to get it down on paper. It's awesome. Thank you very much for coming on the show again. My pleasure. Talk to you next time on Run As Radio.